Please be seated. would take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 3. John 3. If you've been with us on Wednesdays for our luncheon lesson, uh, we're going through the first six chapters of the book of John. Uh, encounters with Jesus, we've called it. It's, uh, sometimes it's one-on-one encounter. Sometimes it's with more than one person. And as Jesus is telling us about the kingdom of God, he's telling us about himself, and he's telling us about salvation. Uh, If you've been in the church for a long time, you're probably pretty familiar with this story. You know how important it is, how pivotal it is, really. Jesus is telling us, this is how you are saved. This is how you enter the kingdom of God. If you don't know this story, it's that important. (laughs) It's very important. It it tells us why we're saved. It tells us who God is and what he's come to do for us. So with that in mind, let me read for us John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word uh, this morning. We thank you that it is true. And Lord, we thank you that you have come not asking things of us, not telling us, giving us a set of lists to do, to be saved and to earn your favor, but yet you do that. You give us a new heart that we need, a heart that loves you and is ready for obedience. Would you teach us that now from your word? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. (coughs) My wife Lauren and I have one child, Nathan, who's three years old. We are expecting our second in August, which we're very excited about. But as a three-year, you know, people say terrible twos. I completely disagree. It's terrible threes, but that's, maybe that's another sermon, but so we're, we're trying to teach Nathan a lot of these new lessons. Uh, a lot of lessons. As a three-year-old, he's becoming more demanding. He can now talk and respond and converse. But our biggest lesson we're trying to teach right now is, is sharing. He really needs to learn this with baby number two coming along, and he's not quite getting it. We have good days and bad. 
But one story this past week is hard not to tell because of how funny it was. So, as I said, he needs to learn this lesson on sharing. Now, if you were to go in Nathan's room, you would see what appears to be an explosion of matchbox cars. They're everywhere. I think he has a million at last count. He, ha- he loves cars. He wants them in his hands always. And so Lauren came up with the idea, why not we get Nathan to share his cars? Nathan, why don't you pick some of your cars that you have that you want to give to someone who may not have them or give them to share with someone else? The look on his face was priceless. <laughs> you, you want me to do what? You want me to give some of these cars away? Is this? And he said, Mommy, I don't want to do that. You know, as if to say, I can't believe you would ask such a thing. What a ridiculous request that you would ask me to share my toys. Nicodemus seems to give a, a, have a, an equally confusing response to the words of Jesus in this passage. I need to be what? I need to be born again? As if Nicodemus had received some new file of information and he's looking for a place to file it away in his brain and he can't find it. It's, it's something completely new to him. Born again, he says it twice. How can this be? He doesn't even know where to begin with understanding. Jesus, at so many places in his ministry, he's turning everything upside down. He's not giving them what they think is going to come. In chapter 2, he does this twice. He turns water into wine. In fact, the water that he uses comes from Jewish purification jars. It was no mistake that he used them. They were used for ritual cleansing. You were unclean, and so you needed your hands needed to be cleansed. Maybe you touched a Gentile when you were in the marketplace or something else that was unclean. You needed to be cleansed, and so that's what they washed. Jesus is saying, don't have to do that anymore. That's a part of the ceremonies that I fulfilled with my coming. I'm I'm fulfilling this ritual cleansing. My blood is all that you're going to need. Later, when he cleanses the temple, he's saying the temple's no longer necessary. My body's the temple. There's no more sacrifices that need to be offered because I am the last sacrifice. He's turning things upside down. He's showing the religious leaders and the teachers of the law that this coming to God and being involved in the kingdom of God is far different than you expect it to be. Jesus is looking straight into the heart of Nicodemus. You think it's external adherence to something. It's not that. It's about your heart. You think it's about doing and observing. It's about what's in here. Before we can do this, before we can see the kingdom of God and obey Christ, we have to be changed from the inside out. The change is from the inside out. So before we can do any of this, we've got to be born again, as Jesus says. Now, Nicodemus has come to Jesus, and he seems curious. Most commentators believe that there is a close connection between chapter 2 and chapter 3. In other words, probably Nicodemus was there when Jesus did these signs in chapter 2. So it prompted him, wait, this is unusual. Somebody that does something like this, he's got to come from God. This isn't a normal guy. I need to go talk to him and try to learn a little bit more. Nicodemus, who is he? Well, he comes with the best credentials of any teacher of the law could have. He's he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which was this Jewish council, very high honor. He's a Pharisee, so he's very highly educated in the law. He's zealous for it. He was well-respected and admired. (laughs) Jesus even calls him the teacher in Israel. That's some sort of a distinction, clearly, that Jesus believes that he has. In other words, on the surface, this seems like a formidable opponent to Jesus. He's got their credentials. He's got the degrees, right? But Nicodemus seems to be convinced that the only way that Jesus could do these is if he had a very close relationship with God. 
but he misses just how important Jesus is. Back in chapter 1, Jesus, John declared that Jesus is God. Nicodemus certainly does not see that. It says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Well, typically, when at night is used in the Bible, it means that somebody's up to no good. <laughs> They're coming with bad intentions. That doesn't seem to be true of Nicodemus. It seems what is more likely is that Nicodemus, he was afraid of what people might think. He was afraid of what his Sanhedrin and Pharisee buddies might th think of him if they saw him conversing with Jesus. What are my friends going to say if they see me uh, conversing which, with, with which... Uh, the person that very soon will be public enemy number one. This, is, this guy, he's, he's taking the honor that we have. Why is Nicodemus talking to him? Perhaps that's why he came to him at night. But it is true with many that come to Jesus, he's more concerned with his outward actions than with his own heart. And that's where Jesus is going after. <coughs> Jesus responds, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus responds, how can this be? How can a man when he's born, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? Well, Nicodemus is doing what the woman at the well is going to do in chapter 4. He's, he's missing the spiritual teaching behind the physical vocabulary. Jesus is using these physical terms, but it's a sign. He's pointed to something. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He assumes that being a part of the kingdom of God has everything to do with the fact that he's a Pharisee, he knows the right answers, he's religious, he keeps the rituals. Jesus is saying nothing about that. He's talking about his heart. You need a new heart. And the only way to get that is to be born again. It, the, the word that's used here is anatheon, which quite literally means born from above. That, that seems to make a bit more sense to our brains. Born again, okay. Born from above is what Jesus is saying. He's teaching Nicodemus and us with the doctrine that's called regeneration. This is what R.C. Sproul says about regeneration. The key work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is not giving new knowledge to the brain. It's not giving new knowledge to the brain, but changing the disposition of the heart. Before the Spirit turns the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, we have no desire for the things of God. We may desire the blessings that only God can give, but we have no affection for the things of God. At the moment of regeneration, the eyes of the heart are opened, but this is just the beginning. The whole Christian life involves an unfolding and enlarging of the heart's openness to the things of God. <coughs> so regeneration involves five things. Let me quickly tell you what they are. Number one, it's a divine work of God taking someone that's spiritually dead and makes them spiritually alive. It's what Paul's saying in Ephesians chapter 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Not physically dead, but you're spiritually dead. You have no desire for God, no desire for the things of the Spirit. So before you can desire them and walk in His ways, you've got to be changed. You've got to be made alive. It's this new heart. Spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Number two, it's a monergistic work. In other words, it's not a little bit of God and a little bit of us. It's all Him, completely and totally. He gives you the new heart. You're changed and then you can have faith unto salvation. But this is the starting point, if you will. The new heart has to come first. Number three, it's an immediate work. It happens like that. It's a moment in time. It's an act. It's a snap of the fingers. Okay? It's maybe your realization that it has happened is gradual and a process, but it's a moment in time. 
Number four, the work of regeneration is effectual. In other words, it's unto salvation. Those whose hearts have changed are changed, they believe, and they're in glory. It's not that there's a lot of people that are walking around with changed hearts, and some of them are unto salvation and some are not. No, if regeneration happens, you are saved. And finally, this regeneration is a gift. It's a gift that we are given, we have not earned it. Jesus illustrates this point in John chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, it says, he's been in the grave four days and he stinks. In other words, he's really dead. He's not kind of dead, he's really dead and he smells bad. So what, before Lazarus can walk out of the tomb, what's got to happen? Well, he's got to be made alive first. <laughs> he can't walk, a dead corpse can't walk out of the grave. Jesus is illustrating this point of, of regeneration. Lazarus had to be made alive and then he could respond in faith. Do you see what Jesus is declaring to Nicodemus? Perhaps Nicodemus had something in mind to, like the rich young ruler did. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is saying, you think this is about making minor changes in your life. Cleaning up a few areas that might make you look better. You think you just need to clean up, you need to follow some rituals, and you need to up your Sunday school attendance. That's not it at all. I've come to tell you that the change is far more drastic than your brain can even comprehend. And this is what is perplexing Nicodemus. Jesus is saying, that's right, it is confusing. Because it's clearly something you've never considered before, although you should have, because Jesus or the Scripture speaks of this in Ezekiel chapter 36. So this morning, it's begging you to ask yourself, are you like Nicodemus? You think it's about what you've done. You're standing before him, your acceptance in the kingdom of God. You think it's about what you've done. You think it's about your social standing, the fact that maybe your last name can unlock doors that for others it can't. Maybe the fact that your family's been going to church for many, many generations. You're not accepted based on those things. It's about Christ and the Holy Spirit giving you a new heart so that you believe in him. What if you asked yourself today, what is the basis of my relationship with God? What is it based upon? Is it your good works? Now, those may be evidences of your relationship, but it's not the grounds of it. A true relationship with God began with him taking your spiritually dead heart, removing it, giving you a heart of flesh and a heart of faith, and you following him. He called you from the spiritual grave and gave you life. And this is why we rejoice and have hope. It can't be reversed and it cannot be nullified. But number two, number one, we're born again. Number two, we're born again of the Spirit. You know, you wonder what Nicodemus expected out of this conversation with Jesus. Maybe he had played it out in his mind. He imagined the way that Jesus might respond. You know, maybe they would exchange some philosophical ideas, banter about, about the law and its expectations. What is clear is that Nicodemus never imagined what Jesus would say to him. <laughs> but Jesus is saying more. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is, one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We have no inclination towards him apart from him. We don't want him. We don't see that we need it. He's got to change us inside first. This is the new birth. And the work of the Spirit, Jesus says, it's mysterious. It's like the wind. Yes, we can look out and see that it's windy. The, I can see leaves blowing back and forth out there. I can see the branches waving. 
But I don't know where the wind started. I don't know where it's going to end. I don't know when the wind's going to stop today. It's like a golfer who's standing on the tee box. He picks up some blades of grass, he throws them into the air, and it, it informs him on how better to hit his golf shot. But then he looks into the distance, and he sees the flag stick, and it's waving the other direction. Oh, goodness, now what do we do? Now you're confused. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. He blows. We can see the results. The results are unmistakable, but how and why and where and when, we don't know. It's, a, it's, it's mysterious to us, but the results most certainly are clear. How can these things be? Nicodemus responds. Jesus finally pushes back against him. Are you the teacher on Israel and you don't understand these things? You're, you're, you're the theologian of the day. How do you not get it? All of, of all people that should grasp this Nicodemus, it's you. You know the Old Testament. You know the teachings of Scripture. Don't, this, should, this should make perfect sense to you. As John read earlier from Ezekiel chapter 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I'll cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The day that Ezekiel had prophesied is here. The Son of Man... Jesus says, I, I am he. I am the Son of Man. Don't you see, Nicodemus? Don't you see that this prophecy is being fulfilled? Jesus is focusing in on the heart, not on the external actions. <coughs> and Nicodemus' affection for him. Uh, I told people in first service that I didn't know where I had gotten this illustration from and for someone to tell me where this is from, but no one did. So maybe y'all will know. Uh, it's a good illustration, but I, I just can't remember where I got it from. Once upon a time, there was a gardener, and he grew an enormous carrot. He was very proud of this carrot, and he wanted to show his love and affection for his king, and so he presented the king this carrot and said, King, I love you. Thank you for how you rule us. Here you go. The king looked at the man and discerned the man's heart that it was a true and genuine gift to him. And as the man was ready to leave, he said, Wait a minute. I have a plot of land that's right next to yours, and I want you to have it. Clearly, you're a good steward of the earth. Take this gift. Well, he was amazed. The man was amazed and delighted at this wonderful gift he'd been given. Now, there was, an, excuse me, there was a nobleman in the king's court who overheard this, and he said, well, huh, I got an idea. If somebody could get this for a carrot. I wonder if something much better than this could return something even greater. So the next day, the nobleman brought in this beautiful black stallion. He said, King, oh, King, I love you. Here's this black stallion. It's the greatest one I've ever bred in my life. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. But the king discerned this man's heart. And he said, Thank you, and merely dismissed the nobleman. The nobleman was confused and downtrodden, so the king looked at him and said, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. The gardener gave the carrot because he loved the king. The nobleman gave the horse to the king because he said, I'm going to get something great for this. He was giving himself the gift, not really of love and affection for the king. Jesus is saying all this works righteousness, Nicodemus, all this adherence to the law, and he's telling us the same thing. If you're doing that and you think that's the grounds for your acceptance in the kingdom of God, you're doing that for yourself. You're not doing it for God. 
You're doing it because you love yourself and you want the rewards, not because you have an affection for him in your heart. How often in the Gospels is Jesus railing on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because their heart has no care and concern for him? You honor me with your lips, says Jesus, but your heart is far from me. You honor me with your mouth, but your heart has no love for me at all. You act like you love me, but you really don't. What about you? Is this why some of you are here today? Not because you love God, but because you really love yourself. You just want blessing and reward. You want some fellowship. You think this is the right thing to do. Are you here because you really love your Savior and you see what he's done for you? You know, I think it's here that a lot of non-Christians get very confused about Christianity. I bet if you asked your non-Christian friends and family members, what's Christianity like? Explain it back to me. That I bet most of them would explain the religion of the Pharisees. They would say, isn't it about just rule following and doing this and doing that and looking down on other people? You see, we often think of life and faith as a choice of two ways. You're either a Christian or a non-Christian. You're either a believer or you're an unbeliever. Which, in a, in a lot of senses, that's true, but what if we thought about it in a third way? Some pastors, very influential in our denomination, have, have thought of it this way. What if, and I even think it's implied in this passage, what if we thought about it in three categories, not two? One, there's irreligion, or what we traditionally call a non-Christian. Okay? They live however they want, their authority to themselves, they just follow their passions and desires. Number two is religion. It's what Nicodemus believed in. The basis of my acceptance before God are my good works. He loves me because of the things that I do. I would say that's the non-Christian world assumes that's what Christianity is about. But the gospel says something completely different than the other two. So I'm not, I'm not accepted based on my works. I'm accepted based on what Christ has done. My works are a result of that. <coughs> this idea is radical for Nicodemus, and I think it's radical for our world today. You're telling people to come to Christ, praying that the Holy Spirit will cause them to be born again. When people hear Christianity or coming to Christ, they assume you're asking them to be moral people. They assume that you're just asking them to follow works righteousness, but you're not. I remember when I was in college and a pastor explained this to me for the first time. When I had eyes to finally see it, my heart had finally been changed. It's like I was reading a new Bible. <laughs> The stories of the Old Testament weren't just be like Abraham. It's look how faithful God is to Abraham. Look at what God's doing through him. Look at the covenants. It's, it's, it was incredible. It's like I had completely new eyes to see. This religion of Nicodemus and the Pharisees, it was exhausting. How could they ever be confident that they had really been accepted into the kingdom of God? It was always about what am I not doing that I should be? What are the things that I have missed? What have I misunderstood? <coughs> Praise be to God for his gospel that he changes our hearts. Lastly, we're born again of the Spirit to follow Christ. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again or born from above. But it doesn't stop there. It's not, great, your heart's been changed, now go live however you want to. No, just as Lazarus had to walk out of the tomb in faith, we have to now walk by faith. Jesus now gives a very vivid illustration from the Old Testament that's driving his point home from Numbers chapter 21. Let me read a few verses. And there's no doubt Nicodemus would have known the story well. 
<coughs> From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes the serpents away. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God brings a plague upon his people because they're grumbling and complaining for the millionth time. Jesus, uh, God is fed up. He sends these serpents into their midst. They bite, start biting people. Some of them die. Then they cry out saying, okay, okay, we've done wrong. Please forgive us. God orders uh, Moses to erect this bronze serpent, uh, bronze serpent, put it in the middle of the camp, and everyone who looked at it would be saved. No matter how many times they had been bitten, they would be saved simply by looking upon this statue. It says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, you know this story that points to this bronze serpent? I am the reality of that story. It's a type or a shadow that's pointing to something else, and it's pointing to the Son of Man being lifted up. That just how the, the children of Israel looked to the serpent, all those that look to me in faith, it saves you. And the bite of sin that we all have, you've now been healed and cleansed. Jesus is telling Nicodemus just how important this gaze of faith is. It saves you, literally. What do you think the obstacles were for Nicodemus in coming to Christ? And how do we make sure we're not like him in this passage? Although you may know this, but it's good to know that in John chapter 7, we see Nicodemus sticking up for Jesus. We also see him helping Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus' body down from the cross. So it does seem that Nicodemus came to faith later in life. But in this story, he does not see his need for Jesus. Behind all of this, or perhaps foundational to it, is that Nicodemus thought the problem was out there. Don't let it inside. It's out there, you know, we can't let it in. Jesus is saying the problem's not out there. The problem is in here. Do you see that? The problem is here. It's not out there lurking like it's going to get you somehow. It's It's a sinful heart. Do you honor God with your lips, yet your heart is far from him? Do you desire to look upon Jesus, to please him? Yes, imperfectly, but do you desire him? Do you love him and want to serve him? And maybe you aren't a Christian this morning. You've assumed that Christianity is all about rules and looking down on people. I hope you see that it's not at all. It's not about being proud of our accomplishments or sitting around haughtily, taking pleasure in the things we've done or sin we've avoided. It's not about thinking we're better than other people. It's about looking to Jesus and realizing all we've been forgiven and even the very fact that we do love him has been given to us. We've been enabled to do that. (coughs) And so our obedience is because we yearn to give our gratitude. We've been changed. We want to obey this Savior. So these final few verses of our passage contain the heart and center of what we mean when we say the gospel. We say that quite often, don't we? These last few verses, this is it. 
The redemptive plan is laid out, and we come to John 3.16, which Martin Luther called the gospel in miniature. I told someone this week that I was preaching on John chapter 3, and they said, well, aren't like pastors required to preach on John 3.16 every so often? Uh, I said no, but I guess it wasn't a bad idea. D.L. Moody was an evangelist in the 1800s, and he said that it was this verse that brought him to an understanding of the love of God. He was early in his ministry, and he had visited England, and he made a friend there, Henry Morehouse. They were, just, they were talking back and forth. Morehouse said that he was going to come to, the, come to America soon. And Moody said, well, if you do, if you ever make it to Chicago, why don't you come and preach in the pulpit at our church? Moody would say later that he didn't really mean that. <laughs> he just offered this gesture and never imagined that Morehouse would actually come, and so he just kind of said it flippantly. Some months later, he received a telegram. It was from Morehouse. It said, just arrived in New York. I'll be to Chicago in a few days. Oh, no. <laughs> Moody was upset. I, I really didn't mean it. I never thought he would actually come. And so he talked to his wife. He talked to the elders of the church. What should I do? You need to let him preach. Morehouse arrived in Chicago. Moody was away doing some evangelism. And he preached for a few days there in the pulpit at Moody's church. Moody arrived back from his evangelistic preaching, and he asked his wife, I heard the new preacher's been there. How's, how's he done? And his wife looked at him and said, he's a better preacher than you are. <coughs> what, why? What's he been saying? He's been telling sinners that God loves him. Moody said, but that's not true. So he hurried down to the church that night to hear Morehouse preach. As Morehouse got into the pulpit, he said, I've been preaching on John 3.16 all week long. I've tried to find another passage from which to preach, but I'm going to preach on this again. Later, Moody testified that on that night, he saw the greatness of the love of God that he had never seen before. That John 3.16 shows us the greatness of God's love. It's the heart of the gospel. It's not just that God is love. It's that God so loved that he gave. It's not just this God is love and there we have, that's open for all sorts of interpretation. He loved by giving. He loved us so much that he solved the problem that we have that is sin by sending his son. And the great love brings a result that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why do we love this verse so much? Why do we quote it? Why do people hold it up when, the, when someone's shooting a free throw in a basketball game on television? Because it really is this simple. And it gives all the glory to God. Do you know this love this morning? I hope that you do. It's secure. It's joy-giving. It gives assurance. But maybe you're like Nicodemus this morning. You've been religious all your life, but you're haunted by the fact that maybe there's just one more thing i got to do before I'm acceptable. Pray for a new heart from the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here today and you're a Christian, and you're, and you're hearing this and trying to understand this, trying to follow Realize that you've been born again from above. No matter where you are, no matter where you happen to be on the spectrum, hear these words and believe them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much for the love that you pour out for us. We are not deserving that you love us and you give us great worth. Lord, thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only son for us. 
And it's his, in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our hymn of response? All I have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night.